Well, welcome back to Dummies on Theology, where the discussion is real and the hosts are imaginary. We're glad you're joining us for this unscripted conversation about God, faith, and the messiness of life. Don't forget, we're running for any office we can get elected to. Our slogans are making America laugh again and making America think again. I'm one of your favorite co-hosts, Pastor Chuck Norris, and I'm here with... I'm Guy, the IT guy. And I am Bruce, the faithful sidekick. And in an effort to help America think again, we have searched for one of the greatest thinkers of our time, and we have found him. He is one of our foremost thinkers, writers, and poets, and that man is Tony Esselon. And Tony, we are so glad you're here. I'm just going to quickly read, uh, well, I can't quickly read this, but briefly your highlights of your <clears throat> uh, who you are. He's a professor. Okay. A professor and writer and resident at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts in Warner, New Hampshire. He's the senior editor for Touchstone Magazine, contributing editor for Chronicles. Uh, he's a regular contributor to Crisis Magazine, and he has written a lot of books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Western Civilization, Ten Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child, uh, Defending Marriage, Life Under Compulsion, Real Music, A Guide to the Timeless Hymns of the Church, out of the Ash, Ashes, Nostalgia, and Sex in the Unreal City, and then the book that we'll be discussing today, The Hundredfold Songs for the Lord. So, welcome, Tony. Hi, it's great to be here. One more dummy in a pack. <laughs> I feel right at home. Fantastic. <laughs> I think that makes us a gaggle or something. I know, yeah. What is the designation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I wonder what, what the collective noun for dummy is. I don't know. Um, so, oh, a Congress! Oh, <laughs> I love it! Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that, that, oh, that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yes. Um, so, the hundredfold songs for the Lord is a book of poetry. Correct? Is that how you'd ex- poetry and songs? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I hope we haven't lost every listener right now. <laughs> uh, no, they're both still here. <laughs> um, what? Yes, it's, it's, Go ahead. It's, well, it's it's a it's a book. Uh, it's one poem, okay, um, which is made up of a hundred poems. Wow! And uh, the poems of are, are of three general, uh, generally three different kinds. Um, they're all about the life of Christ in in some fashion or other uh, in the early church. Um, there are twelve long poems uh, that are dramatic monologues or uh, dialogues. Um, spoken, for instance, by one by St. Peter, which I think I will read, uh, one by um, Pontius Pilate writing a letter to the Emperor Claudius, and, and so forth. And uh, there's just 12 of those. There's 21 hymns, and I specify the music to which they are to be sung, classical uh, melodies, and real hymns, not gibberish well <laughs> um, and, and, and not uh, you know um, not uh, Jesus is my boyfriend songs we I don't do that uh, you have no idea how bad the music is oh. in uh, among us Catholics um, it, uh, yeah and it seems to be go- we seem to be infecting you with a kind of counter um, I would call it a counter-reformation, but I noticed that evangelicals are picking up the lousiest songs that Catholics (laughs) have written in the last four years. I mean, I don't want that vengeance to be taken. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
guys are anyway, but these are real hymns. And then there are 67 um, lyric poems. And by the way, all the poems are written in classical meters. Um, there's no free verse. I don't do that garbage. Um, and so, so if you if you like if you like, well, nobody likes poetry anymore because poets have betrayed their audience for the last hundred years. But yeah. uh, uh, anyway, uh, your your listeners should be assured if they have minds, and I know that not necessarily going to be the case, but especially with uh, with us families here. But if they do have minds, they'll be able to read these. Uh, they'll be read them and understand them. You don't have to have a degree in poetry or anything like that. I'm writing for ordinary, uh, intelligent Christians. And, and I will tell you, so I've got my copy of the book from Amazon, so there's a plug for everybody. You can go to Amazon and you can pick up the book. Uh, and it came in last week, and I started reading through that. Now, I will have to tell you, the introduction alone when I was talking with your wife back and forth, she said, well, we kind of view that as a textbook on poetry. Um, right. And I'm an English major, so it, it just rereading some of that was, I don't want to call it work, but it was a good workout for me uh, just to read through the introduction. And then she said, now make sure you take time, she said, maybe a month or more to read this book so that, <laughs> you, so that you can appreciate everything and take it all in and, and I think she's right I don't think this is a book that you just go home to and, and you want to race through it it's sort of to me uh, like reading the Psalms <clears throat> I can read the Psalms just for the sake of reading them right or I can read them as if I'm joining with the psalmist in this prayer to God and <clears throat> trying to make this my own and, and so I did find myself needing to slow down because I was trying to read it to get ready for a show. And I said, but that's right. not fair to you or to the words that you've written. And so then when your wife gave me permission to not read the whole book before today, <clears throat> I said, well, then yeah. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to enjoy these one at a time for what they are. And, and I have to tell you, I did kind of skip through to just get a feel for it. And the hymns are wonderful. I mean, everything is great. Thank you. But the hymns are wonderful. That's what I wanted to add, too. That the hymns were, I think, one of my favorites um, to read and, and to go through. Because, yeah, it was just rich and, and just colorful with, with how you used the imagery to, to uh, convey your point. And I, I thought it was beautifully written. And, and I think this goes... Well, go ahead. Well, uh, you know what? I, I take my cue from what the great hymnists of, of our tradition and it's very broad tradition, right, for the last 2,000 years have done. Um, and this is what praise and worship writers have not done in the last 30, 40 years. They, you know, they, they emote um, or they give you doggerel. Uh, I'm thinking about what the bad Catholic stuff that we've had for mm -hmm. 50 years. But my gosh, when you look at what the poets did, going all the way back to St. Ambrose and uh, might be the earliest that we can pinpoint or pretentious. These, these guys wrote these hymns at this time. You know, um, they they're rich in theology. They're rich in scriptural uh, resonance, and they have real thoughts to convey. You know, not not sloppy sentiment, but real thoughts. Not political slogans. Oh, Lord help us. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, when, when those are your inspiration, and that continued for more than 19, that continued for like nine, 1900 years or so, right? 
Um, and uh, I'm not just talking about the hymns written way back in Latin and Greek, but, you know, 19th century American revival hymns. They did the same kinds of things in a, in a different setting, in a, in a truly folk setting, you know? Um, well, when you have all that uh, backing you up, um, you, don't have to, you don't have to reinvent wheels, you know? Um, so I took my inspiration from them. And uh, in each of case with the hymns, um, I knew what the hymn was going to be about, where it was going to get placed in the poem, why it was going to be there, um, what what uh, general attitude I wanted from the poem. So I picked the melody, pick the melody, and write the hymn to fit the melody, um, and not just say, "Oh, I'm just going to write a hymn and now I'll tack on a melody." You know, I I I wanted. Christus Logan Totus Christ lay in the bonds of death as one of my Easter hymns. I wanted that melody. Um, and so on. Uh, and I, I think, I've heard a few of them sung. Um, and uh, they work. I have, I'm proud of them. I, 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 they, they, they work very well, I think. But, and you should be. So Sunday, we sang the, uh, I don't know if it's a Catholic song or not, but for the Lutheran Church, um, we had Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we sang for our sermon hymn, Built on the Rock, the Church Must Stand. And uh, if, okay. you don't, if, you don't, if you're not familiar, sometime Google that hymn up. It's just a wonderful, <clears throat> uh, that even as the world and the church are falling down, we have this rock that we stand on. And as we were singing right. that, it, it took me back to the book and your hymns because... In, in fewer words, you and these other hymn writers are saying more because you're picking words that contain more meaning, uh, a richer theology of who we are. And right. so it's not these shallow words that you have to either sing them 11 times or seven times, <laughs> or yeah. you need yeah. hundreds of words to say it. You, you pick a word that's rich and pregnant with meaning to those who are Christian— and, and the word speaks for itself without other words. And, and so that's what I got from your hymns is that you don't need a bunch of words to say what you want to say if you use the right words, if that makes sense. Yeah, what does? I mean, well, first of all, you have to know, you have to know how to write poetry. Okay? And most of our songwriters don't know how to write poetry. They, they want to write a song, but they can't write a poem. Well, that doesn't really work together. Not when you're talking about hymns. Hymns are sung, are, are poems that are sung, right? Theological and scriptural poems that are sung. We have to write a good poem. Um, and uh, they don't know how to do that, okay? Because they don't know really what, what the art is all about. And it is an art, you know? I mean, would you say to a well-intended plumber down the street, Hey, guy. Hey, Joe. Uh, we could use a painting or two uh, on our ceiling, you know, maybe like uh, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you, I, you, you did a really good paint-by-numbers job of Elvis Presley on Black Velvet. Uh, I saw it. So can you, uh, you know, give us like the Sermon on the Mount? 
Oh, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, sure. How you, you want me to put a smiley face on Jesus? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, you ha- exactly you right. would do that because you, people, have, people have some sense, right? They say, you know, uh, painting is actually a, uh, painting things, something that will look like real human beings doing things. That is actually a very difficult thing to do. Um, but they don't, they don't apply that same wisdom to, to the poetry that we have to sing in our churches. That, oh, gee, that's an art? And it actually takes years of study and practice to be able to do it? Uh, it, it never occurs to them at all, you know? Imagine if your plumber was as inexperienced for plumbing as these guys are inexperienced <laughs> right. for poetry. We get the, we get the same the same results. Yeah, we're, we're leaking theology because of the poor plumbing. Yeah, and from all the wrong places too. So, so what possesses somebody like you in a world where people have forgotten poetry uh, or are bad at it to sit down and say, "I'm going to write this book that no one's going to read." I, I mean, that's well, what you have to be thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I've written plenty of books. Um, I uh, this is actually a return for me. Okay, um, I began writing poetry when I was uh, sixteen or seventeen years old, and I I intended it at that time this was going to be my life's work. Um, I, you know, did the academic stuff. Got got uh, graduated from Princeton and got my doctorate and. Uh, began to teach literature and especially poetry. My, my emphasis was on old stuff from the Renaissance and the Middle Ages. Um, then uh, uh, I, I kind of, in my early 30s, hit a little bit of a wall. Um, and a lot of that energy that went into writing poetry, was I shifted it towards translating uh, epic poems into English verse. And I've translated three epic poems into English verse. I was working to get my uh, promotions as a professor. Um, Lucretius' De Rerum Natura from Latin into English. Uh, and then Toquato Tasso's Jerusalem Delivered, about the First Crusade, um, from Italian into English. And then Dante's Inferno and Purgatorio and Paradiso, really like five. Uh, it's five books of big, big books, too, of, of translations of, of um, poetry from Italian and Latin into English poetry, right? Um, and uh, finally, I, I thought in, in several years ago, it's time to go, it's time to go back, um, partly because something in me was crying out for it. Uh, you, you now have things to say again. And partly it was that I sensed that nobody um, was reading poetry anymore. And and the church had lost it. Um, and so it was the sort of thing that I do in other, in other ways with other things to reintroduce uh, my fellow Christians to something of their heritage, uh, something very precious and something very powerful, right? Um, and uh, that, that, that was the aim. Um, I got 
uh, unexpected encouragement from a very insightful friend of mine, a Canadian actor, a devout uh, Christian, who says, you know, it just came to me, Tony, you got to start writing poetry again. <laughs> uh, it just came out of nowhere. I said, you know, it's funny that you should say that. Um, and so, uh, so I did this. And um, I've studied, I've studied poetry all my life. And I taught it you know, all, all my career. Um, and I thought, this is something that I can do. And uh, I want to provide an example in various ways for other Christians to, uh, to, to take it up again. Because this stuff is dynamite. Poetry is dynamite. You know, we, we teach our kids, we have our classical curricula, right? And we want to put good literature in front of our kids. Well, uh, I, I, I love that kids will be reading Charles Dickens. I, I recommend it all the time. Uh, and other great novels. But still, if you're reading Charles Dickens, you've got 600 pages in front of you. If you read a great poem, you can read some great poems in two minutes or ten minutes. They can be with you for the rest of your life. Um, this is like nitroglycerin <laughs> and dynamite. You you want to dig you want to dig a hole through a mountain, dig a tunnel through a mountain. Well, if if you if you put in front of your kids only hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of the best fiction in the world, you're still working with picks and shovels. If you put great poetry in front of them, you got nitroglycerin and TNT. And guess which works more efficient. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I want to read a lot. So when, <laughs> when you describe it as an art or a process, what really goes into, in, in your estimation, writing great poetry versus some of the gibberish maybe that you see nowadays? Well, um, uh, great poetry is, there, there are several things. that I, I'll just talk about a couple of things that people seem to forget. One of them is that um, in all of the traditions of the world, uh, until the 20th century, it's taken for granted that, that great poetry is related to music um, and that music has a structure to it, a form, even a mathematical form. So the connection between mathematics and, and music is very strong in the Western tradition, probably also in, in the Eastern tradition, though I don't know that very well, right? Um, and also the connection between uh, um, formal structure, the formal structure of mathematics, formal structure of music, and poetry was just considered to be music, okay? Uh, and uh, that's been lost, right? Um, that, that, that poetry has an essentially musical form. Um, that we, we need to take that back, right? We need to return to that. Because people will say, people will say things like, you know, I don't, I don't really like poetry because they don't know any of it, right? Um, but nobody ever says, you know, I don't really like music. Have you ever hear right. anybody say, oh, please uh, stop playing that music? I hate music. <laughs> right. Nobody says that, right? Exactly. Um, so, uh, any, so I think great poetry has to preserve the relationship. The great poetry, like like um, great uh, pictorial art, it, it, in great poetry, there's uh, 
pressure of, of economy. That is, you can't waste a word. You can't waste a sentence or a line. Um, everything's got to be... Um, John Keats said, load every rift with ore. Everything's got to be packed with gold, right? Now, sometimes it can be very subtle. Uh, the music can be subtle. The music can seem like ordinary conversation. But nevertheless, um, the poet is always thinking, why did I use this word, not that word? Why did I have the line this way and not some other way? Right? Um, so it's, it's, it's terrifically concentrated. Um, this this art, and uh, I guess some of those two things are that it would lead to the third. That is, in in a in a poem, which you've got is like a a, a perfect, or as much as you can make it, uh, a, a coherent and integrated work of art, so that everything in it reflects other things in it in a variety of ways. Um, and you don't just don't just move through it as you would move through a newspaper article from uh, you know the start middle to the end, but that you, you, it's more like you're, you're looking at a vast mural, and each thing in the mural is meant to reflect upon every other thing in a, in a like a constellation uh, of, of ways, and. Um, this is, you know, I'm talking about it this way. This is very hard to learn, uh, but it's very rewarding when uh, you learn it. And I think, I think, I think everybody can be uh, led to appreciate it. And um, uh, you know, even if you can't, it's like great, great painting, right? Uh, who's going? Not many people are going to be great painters, but anybody can be taught how to uh, look at a great painting and how to how to understand it how to how to say okay well I, you know I I see what the painter is doing here isn't it wonderful um, anyway so uh, I'm I'm trying to reintroduce people in in the Christian churches to to this art um, and it, with the hopes that they'll take the ball from me and uh, go and do likewise that's fantastic um Tony, what would you say would be one thing that you would want your readers to take away from from your hundredfold uh, book? Oh well, uh, probably a lot of things. But the one thing that leaped into my mind was this: that this is the sort of um, this is the sort of work that uh, somebody in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance would have taken to that they would have said oh I can they would more readily than we have said uh, I can see what you're up to here and not having to do with the language language is uh, our contemporary English but the the whole structure of it the, the structure of the whole thing and of each of the parts and how they reflect each other but they they had that habit they developed that habit to uh, uh, an extraordinary degree because that's what they believed about Scripture already, mm -hmm. okay. um, that uh, that God had given us this, this precious word, and that it wasn't just that each part of it was important in itself, 
but that every part reflected on all of the other parts. So that, um, so that when you, when, and sometimes the authors themselves are quite aware of this. So, 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 uh, the evangelist John, the apostle John is quite aware, uh, at the beginning of his gospel that he's echoing Genesis. It's quite deliberate. And we're supposed to think so too in the beginning, right? Um, and if, if you, if you look at scripture in the way that everybody did, uh, until the, uh, historical critics came along, um, about a hundred years ago or so, uh, if you look at scripture in the way the poets did, the artists did, the theologians did, the mystics did, um, then it's, it's incredibly rich, right? Um, there's, there's no end to learning about scripture. Um, and that's because it's not just a collection of individual things. It's a vast, coherent whole. Um, it's a whole that is W-H-O-L-E. It's, 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 it's an entirety. It's like a universe. Okay, so before we really kind of get into the book and letting you read to us, um, when do you think, because as I understand, prior, you know, hundreds of years ago, even just what we would consider a common man would have been reading poetry, would be acquainted with the art of poetry, uh, maybe even memorizing some of that poetry. When did we lose sight of poetry? And, and, and why do you think that happened? I mean, if we're going to geek out on this subject, we might as well yep. just go a little <laughs> further. But, but I'm just okay. curious as to, in your opinion, when did this start to happen, that the decline in reading poetry, seeing that as viable literature to hand to your kid or to read at the dinner table or to use it as memory work or you know putting it to heart like we might a song, when yep. did that occur and why? Uh, it, it, I... It occurred. Um, I, I think it, things really, really hit the skids with the advent of free verse, uh, which came to English through French in the 19th century. Um, it wasn't really popular in English for quite a long time until uh, the great poets Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot kind of um, established it, and they were great poets. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that, but I, I think, I think it ultimately did a great lot of harm to poetry, um, especially Eliot's uh, arcane uh, allusions. It's, it's, you know, he's high literary. He's writing for people who have, you know, read thousands of books. He's not writing for the average guy on the street. He did never intended to. Um, that, that put poetry on a, on a, on a bad footing. Um, I think that when uh, Robert Frost and Carl Sandburg died, um, Frost was, I think, much the greater of the two as a poet. Frost is really underrated as a poet. Um, they died in, Frost died in the early 60s, Sandburg died several years later. Um, they were the last truly popular poets in the United States. Uh, ordinary people have really no connection to poetry at all. 
put Frost and Sandberg. Sandberg wrote free verse, but most but mostly understandable. Frost, much greater poet, he he wrote in ordinary English, and, and anybody could understand a poem by Frost. I mean, you could at least get in the door. Uh, you weren't just bombarded with things. You'd say, what, what the heck does that even mean? Frost didn't write like that. And he wrote in traditional meters all the time. He never wrote free verse. He didn't like it. Uh, but that, that's all gone now. And now, um, you know, po- poets, people who call themselves poets haven't learned the art. Uh, and their audience is very narrow. It's, you know, academics, uh, and not even very many of them. Other poets, poetry conferences, creative writing workshops. Um, they've lost the connection with the people. Uh, it didn't help that they lost the connection with worship and, and song. Um, now they're, they're just, um, I don't know what they are. <laughs> and ordinary people don't care. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. And interesting, you talked about going back to poetry because you had something to say. And, and as, as I've been mulling that over in my head, I think there are so many in our world today because of social media and 142 characters or whatever, so many people that have nothing to say anymore. And so we've lost a way. I think poetry used to be a way for people to express themselves. Uh, and, I, and I think we've lost that. And I think people don't know. Uh, you know, there's you watch a convention, uh, Democrat, Republican, whatever, and, and people are just shooting off tweets, you know, six words, eight yeah. words, ten words. And it doesn't say anything because they don't really have anything to say. And they talk for 10 or 20 minutes and you're like, you have nothing to say, and that then I read your book, and I read some of the other poets uh, from my college days, and it seems like they have so much to say. Yeah, uh, yeah, and the, well, they're drinking at the wells of uh, Christian culture and Christian thought. Um, where you change the metaphors, they're they're standing on the backs of giants. Well, you can see a lot farther when you got a nine foot guy underneath your feet there. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well said. <laughs> um, it's it's it, it, it's it's actually rather sad. Um, I I sometimes uh, lose my patience a little bit on on anti-social media, and um, <laughs> and and say out loud, hasn't anybody here ever read a book written <laughs> before the day before yesterday? <laughs> and the answer is no. <laughs> No, the answer is usually no. Yeah, right. uh, and it's very sad um, because I, I know from my experience as a professor back at uh, well college that I won't even name anymore, but I taught there for twenty-seven years that you could you could be absolutely on opposite sides politically and yet be united by a common love for beautiful uh, and profound works of art, hmm. right? Um, uh, for the plays of Shakespeare or for Milton's Paradise Lost. I've I got a liberal. She thinks of herself as a feminist. Um, she's much better than that. Um, she, she taught Milton all the time when I was at that college. Then she retired and I started to take up Milton. Um, and... Uh, we, I mean, it's something that unites us, but it's not just a trivial thing like you happen to 
you know, root for the St. Louis Cardinals. I do. Uh, there you go. I'm a Cardinal fan too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, it's it's a deep thing, it's a profound thing, because Milton reached the very core of your being, um, and then you know, you know, I mean, this person and, and I we're close in some very important way. Uh, and with the with the Twitter stuff that's out there, that nobody nobody has that experience. And I, I think our secular folks don't even understand that there is such an experience to have. And that's um, sad. Very sad. Yeah, it's very sad. Yeah, yeah. There, it's to be secular in our time is to be a truncated human being. Hmm. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah, what? and and it's not to, it's not even to know it. It's, it's you're hopping around on one leg, and you don't even know it. But I would even go a step further and say that that it, even in some of our Christian tradition, we're living that way, without the yep. real beauty of the Scripture and and the deep the theology of the Church and the hymnody of the Church and the musicality of the Church. I mean, at one point, the Church was the place to be. If you yep. wanted to be yep. educated, if you wanted to know art or music or poetry or writing or language, you went to the church. I know. And now we're, we're, we're got, it's an afterthought. Yeah, I know. Uh, we, we, we have, just to take music for an example, we've got Palestrina, we've got Johann Sebastian Bach, <laughs> we've got Mozart, we've got Handel, we've got Mendelssohn. Holy cow! Uh, we got Haydn. Uh, um, what? What do you have if if you're secular? We don't even have decent popular music anymore. Um, and and kids, if you said sing sing your ten favorite songs, I don't think most kids even know ten songs. That's, that's probably true, or at least ten not worth singing for sure. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I think is, as I was reading your book again and taking time to digest this and listening to you, I kind of see this, whether you intended it or not, I'm going to declare this for everyone. Okay. This is Tony's gift to the church, um, helping us get back to maybe where we were and where we still should be uh, in this connected to the bigger picture where the church didn't start yesterday, but it started in the very beginning uh, as God yeah. began to create order out of the chaos. And so uh, I want to thank you for that gift, and I'm looking forward to you. Um, you uh, your wife promised you would read for us, and so uh, I'm going to have you go ahead. So please don't tune out now. This is the good part where <laughs> it's going to be for us to be kids again, uh, but in a different way, and to have someone read to us uh, for the broader good of okay. the church. So I'm setting you up for that. So uh, what do you want to read for us? Okay, uh, I'm going to read to you... Um, I'm going to read to you... Uh, uh, first, I'm going to read a hymn, okay? Um, and um, the reason is that... Um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that I'll, I would... Um, I would uh, read the one of the shorter dramatic monologues as St. Peter, um, and the hymn will fit with, uh, with St. Peter. Um, 
this is to be sung to a rather a little-known melody called The Little Road to Bethlehem. It's a beautiful melody. Um, it's, it's four stanzas, and um, the, uh, the controlling metaphor is uh, of a carpenter, right? Uh, Jesus is carpenter and uh, the cross. So, um, good carpenter, the flood is rising high. Take us within thy vessel, lest we die. All that we build is dust, as dust are we, and no salvation find except with thee. There dwells the surest wisdom in thy hands, but all our temples rest on shifting sands. Take down our pride and leave no stone on stone, and raise instead a temple of thine own. Thy hands have knowledge of the strongest wood, while ours are soft and know not bad from good. The bridge's piers give way to utter loss, then span our road to heaven by thy cross. Take us, good carpenter, and do thy will. We cannot be the carved and carver still. Breathe into us thy life, that we may be forever living images of thee. Wow. That's that's great. Um, and uh, then, uh, see, all, 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 what I've done is place the place the hymns and the lyric poems and the monologues in very specific orders. Um, it's all mathematical too. But uh, between that hymn and what I'm going to read from Saint Peter, there are three short lyrics. One, I read one of them here, and each of the lyrics, each of the sixty-seven lyrics, is prefaced by a verse from Scripture. Uh, and this is prefaced by the verse, and he wept bitterly. The night was raw, Jesus was bound for trial, and guardsmen chased their fingers at a fire awaiting the event. Coward and liar, we call the apostle for his curt denial that he but knew the man, his Lord and friend. Let us not strut about it. He stood by in peril of his life. Shall we defend our silence so? Who summons us to die? The cock has crowed for us these thousand years. Give us, good friend, the gift of bitter tears. Um, Those last two and, lines are amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm mm. hoping. So, so this was by way of uh, a preface to. Um, and, the, and the next lyric is also a very short lyric about St. Peter, but it's about... Uh, what happened afterwards, uh, after the resurrection, Jesus um, asking Peter, do you love him? Right. So this is the, this is the monologue uh, spoken by St. Peter. It's a little bit unusual. Um, it's shorter than the others. Uh, not that short, but it's shorter than the others. And um, it's almost a, a street stream of consciousness because this is spoken by Peter or thought by Peter in Peter's head. After he has denied Christ. So this is Peter. Um, I'm put myself, trying to put myself in the moment. What, was go, what would go through your mind if you were Peter and you had denied Christ and the cock crowed, Jesus looked at you, and you went outside and you wept bitterly? What's in your mind? Okay. Um, and a whole lot of stuff from his experience with Jesus is in his mind. So let me read this here. Okay. 
from me, I am an evil man. Fall on me, mountains. Crush my foolish name out of the world. I with my swagger. I, the mighty bulwark. Even if these should leave you, even if these my little timid brothers should leave you, I will never. Satan snaked into the traitor's mouth as he took bread, but never entered me. There was no need. Why did he ever call me from the shore? Why, when I could have gone to hell in peace, could have drunk off that bad night in the boat, filled my belly with swine husks, what of that? Husks are fit for a swine. Why touch my soul with thirst, with hunger? Why not let my mouth be full of curses to the grave should stop it, could stop the other swine? My brothers, they scattered like sheep, like honest, weakly sheep, but not I, no. He built me up for this fall. He foretold it. I have understood nothing, done nothing, been none other than a worthless and unprofitable servant. Bitted, buried my pitted drachma in the earth, snuffed out the lamp. I am salt without savor, ashes to gnash your teeth on and spew out. Why not have given me what I begged at first? Depart from me. I am an evil man. Depart from me. Oh, my dear Lord, do not heed what I say. I have beheld your eyes, and that has ruined my sins forever. That has ruined my life. And were I cast like Jonah into the sea, you would be there. You would look on me with your eyes. He would be there to lay my sins naked to all the world, and they deserve no less. You loved me with a love that seared me almost into life. And in my paradise, my dreams, I thought I was a worm no longer, but a man. A man and no worm. Why, the chief of men who could say, even if all these fools and cowards should turn upon you, should forget your love, your love that made them, I, full of myself, my all quarrelsome and impatient self, puny and foolish, even at the work I have done all my life, an empty boat, a torn net, swollen knees, bitter words for when the wife would scold me and her mother. What did you see in that? What could you love? Depart from me. I am an evil man. I will not follow your nostrils with my stink, dead fish and brackish water and bad linen and sin, the stupid, worthless, paltry stuff, a stunted eel not worth the throwing back. What did you see? I search your eyes. I long to understand a little, be alive a little like the broken eel. Be worth temptation. And they dragged you here and there as if you were a sheep led to the slaughter. And the lone question was which mighty man would bid his servant cut your throat? And I, I watched. What have I done? I watched. I said I would abide the time for action. But the acceptable time is always now. If I held back, I might prove of some use. Foolish, prancing peacock of a man, petty in enmity and friendship both, delivering up the Lord of life to die, all the while saying, oh, I might yet strike, must keep myself alive, but for his sake, I have undone the wonder and turned wine into the standing water of a pond coated with scum, the daily scum of men such as I am and I have always been. You gave foreknowledge to a witless beast. But I, a man you made in your own image, I do not know the closest thing to me. I do not know myself. I will not know. All is an agony of foolishness. Oh, my sweet Lord, what have I done to you? The sons of thunder fell and hit their eyes against a brilliance that would shame the sun. But I thrust my neck up for brave delight, said, Lord, how good is it for us to be here? How good it is. I do not know the man said I, chafing
dipping my fingers in the fire while the hot blood was dripping from your back, bare to the lash and to the cold night air. Oh, indeed, good to be there on the mountain in the bright day, but soon the sun would set, and in my precious care for you, I said, let us erect three shelters from the cold, one each for you and Moses and Elijah. Out of my senses then, what of tonight? Depart from me, I'm an evil man. Even if all these others should stand near, I will depart from you. Keep a discreet distance, skulking about the place of judgment, just near enough to satisfy my pride, but never once to rush among them, crying, Roman, this man is innocent in the flesh. I'm the insurrectionist you want. He doesn't know what he is speaking of. To stand near so he would not die alone, abandoned. And the girl with the shrewd eyes, hoping to win some favor from her lord, said, You were one of them from Galilee. I saw you. I can hear it in your voice. The rasp of a backcountry fisherman, a witless beast. And I broke out in curses. I tell you, I have never known the man. Truth for once from my lips, the bitter truth. When he said, Who do men say that I am? The others. <laughs> Even if all these others should give you up to the mercies of this world, I, the steadfast, shall never. They replied, Elijah, John the Baptist, or some prophet, come back beneath the coverts of the flesh to hasten on the great day of the Lord. But they were far wide. When men slant their gaze away from the plain truth to search the clouds, as of old sages weighing subtle things, then he said, and he fixed us with his eyes. And what of you? Who do you say I am? If I believed it, why am I still here? I do believe it, but I am still here, so much the worse for me. My brothers fled, all but the boy, and were it not for him, I'd have found some mouse hole in the city to smuggle away my loyalty and courage and stroke myself for being wise. Said I, you are the Christ, son of the living God, and the cock crowed. And he looked round to me. Blessed am I, Simon the son of Jonah, delivering up the Lord of life, my Lord, my friend, the brother who declared my name, summoned me out of my gnat-ridden life so that I could behold his knowing eyes, full of a sadness for such pitiful things as Simon, son of Jonah. I would swing a sword but not go with him to the cross, brave when it counts for nothing. When he knelt in prayer... Amid the brooding silence of demons watching their prey, no throat of mine blurted, how good it is for us to be here. I snored and snored again, and now no sleep will come to me. But when I shut my eyes, I see his burning eyes as the cock crows, searching the little puddle of my soul. And flesh and sorrowing blood will cry, I am a sinful man. Do not depart from me. Never abandon me to be myself. They lead you on to your most bitter cross. And I, not there beside to lend a shoulder, I can do nothing else but cry to you out of the depths amid a night of tears that you, even you, with arms nailed to the tree, might reach me in the storm and bear me up into the boat, lest I the rock should sink and the waves close at last over my bones. Save me, O Lord, is all I have to Wow, that's amazing! Uh, reading it and and listening to you read it, um, you were talking about images and pictures, and so listening to you, the whole story just uh, it's vibrant. Know, it just comes alive, and you're right. watching Peter, and you're feeling what Peter must have felt, realizing uh, 
the line that just struck me: "Never abandon me to myself." Yes. Um, just that's. Yeah. It's just rich with so much of the gospel story, and, and the. It, it just kind of reminded me of like a a tapestry where every stitch in that tapestry matters, right? And it yeah. What, yeah. it just all is is interwoven and and creates this beautiful image and wow you that and there's, is mastery. Well, that's, what the, that's what the old that's what the old poets did. That's what they did. That was their uh, that was their job. And, and what's so amazing is I, I was reading along in the book with you and, and I'm listening to you and I'm looking at the words as well and I'm like there's not one word that <laughs> doesn't serve a purpose here. There's not one punctuation mark that doesn't serve a purpose to further drive that narrative or this story uh, into the heart of the listener or the believer. And, and, and so I'm curious, just that alone, how long does that take to, to write that from beginning to where you're done and you say, this is the, the living, breathing document that I have now? Oh, gosh, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, took, it took me a few years uh to begin it and finish it all the way through. Mm-hmm. Funny thing about it is that um, that uh, I guess you could say that having taught and read uh, all of those poems and Christian poems for, for so many years, this is all this is all preparation. You know, um, it's it's not as if I was stuck match. Um, this is it's all, it's all uh, you know, maybe you could say in a sense that I've been writing it for 30 years. Well, it's um, just amazing. I mean, it really is. Have you, have you considered well, you. having this as a audiobook and having you be, you know, the narrator? I, I keep telling them at Ignatius Press that I would do this in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, that would yeah, be fantastic. I, well, we should start a campaign yeah. for you because right. uh, if you could have seen the faces of everybody in this room, it's like the world around us stopped for one moment as we – I mean, you told us you were good. Your wife told us that you were good at this. But because it's your story, your poem, right. uh, I got sucked into mm-hmm. – Every inflection, you know, every nuance. Yeah, I don't know. Just... What, I guess I don't even know what I'm saying. I just – I was ready to stop. I was like, okay, the world can end right here. I'm done. This was great. <laughs> Jesus can come and we can all be done with 2020. But I mean, <laughs> I lost myself for that moment oh. in, in everything else that was going on today. Well, he knew the intent and the emotion of every word. and He was capturing it himself with his passion. It was just amazing. I was just drawn into it. I okay. thought, wow, he captured the arrogance in some ways of Peter. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden in the, in the, the highest moment, moment when I'll never leave you, he denies him. You can just matter. You can just imagine how that tore him up inside once he reflected upon it in that very moment when their eyes met. Yeah, you know, and and the thing is that the, the, the motif of Jesus's eyes, Jesus looking at you. Um, see, I picked that up from a, an Italian Catholic uh, novelist, uh, Riccardo Bacelli, who wrote a novel called *The Glance of Jesus*. It's not been translated into English, but. Uh, I took inspiration from that too, because it's this whole novel is told from the point of view of the demoniac um, that Jesus cast the demons out of. But then he told him, "Go home to your family," uh, 
because he wanted to follow him. But she says, no, go home to your brothers. And, uh, you know, that, that's um, it's another another case. You know, when you don't have to start from scratch. Um, you, people have already done this kind of thing. Uh, the, the great dramatic monologue writers of the 19th century, Robert Browning and, and Alfred Tennyson, um, had already paved the way, you know. Uh, one thing, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna give you a suggestion here. This is how this is how poetry works, right? I'm waiting. In some ways, it's like being a movie director. I'm waiting at the end of uh, this monologue with Saint Peter to to hit everybody with um, a connection between one motif that has to do with Peter and a completely different one, apparently, right? Because it was Peter who said in his letter that um, um, the church is is like Noah's Ark. Noah is a prefiguring of of church, and some souls were saved, namely eight, Mm -hmm. right? Um, In that ark, right? In that boat. Peter and boat, Peter and boat, um, and Peter as rock, okay? And I'll put those two together. And you won't know until the very end that I'm going to do it. But when I do it, you say, um, well, gosh, that was inevitable, right? So, again, uh, uh, this is a little last paragraph, right? They lead you on to your most bitter cross. And I, not there, decide to lend a shoulder. I can do nothing else but cry to you out of the depths. Now, that's Jonah. Hmm. Out of the depths amid a night of tears that you, even you with arms nailed to the tree, might reach me in the storm. That's you know, the scene with Jesus walking on right. the water. Well, and that hit home and because beach. that was our lectionary reading two weeks ago. So oh, wow. that right. just really, yeah. this whole thing, we've been watching Peter make these confessions this last week and then two weeks ago with, uh, yeah. So you've been, we've been walking this. So, so you picking St. Peter... <laughs> Um, but so I'm going to ask a quick. It's, 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 and, and, but it's, it's right. he's going to drown because he's the rock. Hmm. Um, bear me up into the boat lest I, the rock, should sink. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he's got that last dig at himself as as rock. What good is a rock on the waves? Right. Um, so. Just as you're reading this, I'm thinking to myself, there are certain times in the church year that lend itself to sort of this kind of uh, monologue poetry. What would you think if someone said, hey, Tony, on Good Friday, we think we're going to read this in church? Would would you say no to them or would you say, go ahead, go for it? I would say no. I would say no, but I would say, listen, if you want to get together afterwards or before, uh, but but as part of the liturgy, I would say no. Um, but the whole poem that is the hundredfold is structured around uh, a holy week. So the very center of it all, right? Um, the death and the resurrection of Christ, and in the, in the exact center are five hymns. And they're all um, uh, uh, crucifixion, death, and resurrection hymns, right? 
Easter Triduum hymn, um, right there in the center. Uh, five stanzas, five stanzas, eight stanzas, five stanzas, and five stanzas. That's also deliberate. Um, so that the central poem of the whole thing is an eight stanza hymn um, about the eighth day, which is the day of resurrection. So it, it, it would be, it's, I mean, it's appropriate. The whole thing is appropriate for uh, Passion Tide and Holy Week and Easter Tide. Because um, that's what I was thinking throughout. Wow. Uh, I mean, even, even though it extends beyond that, so that the last monologue is a, a dialogue. Actually, three people speak in it. Um, it's the el- elderly, now the elderly Apostle John on Patmos, apparently dying. Well, two of his disciples, an older disciple and a young and a young fellow, are are keeping vigil at his bedside. Um, and uh, so that that's it's like the last monologue that, that brings us to the to the second, um, opening us up to the second coming of Christ. So, will there be more poetry from Tony, or no? Yeah, I I've. Already, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, but I, I have, I have um, an initial uh, blueprint for uh, for uh, a 144 poem, poem, um, 144 appropriate for the apocalypse, um, the 12 times 12,000, sure. mm-hmm. right, <clears throat> and. Uh, uh, I also have the, the 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 kinds of poems and the, the monologues would be 33, and I paired them up, uh, sort of mirror images of each other. So they, um, and they they t- those don't just end with the the time of Christ; they go into the modern period. But a monologue one matches up with 33 to the 32. Um, you know that I can include anybody and everybody, like Nietzsche, for instance. Speak Nietzsche almost out of his mind, uh, speaking as he sees a clergyman talking down below his window, and he uh, sees with resentment. Um, you know, uh, it's an, it would be a pretty ambitious thing, and. and um, I need I need to I need to stop thinking about uh, paying the bills. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna say I've got about a I've got about a month on this book, so then you, you got at least a month to get the next one done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, as we as we near the end of our time, if people are interested in using the hymns in the book for worship, do they need to contact you, or what should they do? I think they should contact Ignatius Press. I'm, okay. I'm hoping that, um, well, I think Ignatius would give them permission to, to use informally, uh, but I really am hoping that, that Christian publishers will find these hymns and put them in hymns. All right. You know? Well, we'll see what we can do. I don't know any Christian publishers, okay. <laughs> but I'll see what I can do. Yeah, no, I think I, they're worth binding. I do. Uh, I think it's a return to... Uh, the hymn writing that, uh, especially as Lutherans and Catholics, that we have grown accustomed to, oh yeah, uh, that throws us yeah. back to yesteryears, if I can use a country western type well, term. It, it, the Catholics 
used to be used to. Yes, well, uh, and Lutherans they, as well. I mean, even our more modern hymn, hymn writers are not uh, of the same depth and breadth of what we had grown accustomed to. Um, but you have a couple of good ones. Um, what's, I, I'm not sure how he pronounces his last name. Is it Starkey or Stark? Starkey. Um, Starkey, yeah. I, he's not bad. No, we have a few, but but I think we have to ignite that love for poetry again within the church. So this is my last question because we've kept you an hour. And so okay. um, if you were talking to a homeschool parent, a fourth grade teacher, or someone like that, where would you tell them to start uh, in getting kids back into poetry? Is there a poet that they should look at or... Um, um, well, I, I've been recommending for, not for the youngest kids, uh, but for maybe kids in middle school or, or early high school, uh, the, um, a, 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 a Jewish fellow who's actually pretty good, a poet himself named Louis Untermeyer, um, he, he actually was kind of well known in the country back in the day, um, wrote a book called... Uh, doorways to Poetry. I think it's Doorways to Poetry. Pathways to Poetry. I get them mixed up. He wrote two. Um, but anyway, they're very, very good. And um, they, he, he kind of is aware that young people are not reading poetry. And in fact, he, he meets the objection that only sissies read poetry. Um, and he, uh, he says, well, that's not in fact the case. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, the book is full of um, mostly shorter poems, but really good discussions of what, what you know, what makes the poem a really good poem, and not technical stuff, you know, no, no, not any of that stuff. Um, just a just like a guy who's a really good writer himself, just to you know get kids excited about about the art, you know. Uh, other than that, I, I've, I've always recommended, um, you know, he's a Catholic, and so there's Catholic emphasis to, to his choices sometimes. But John Sr. came up with a list called A Thousand Good Books, and uh, they're, these are good for the soul and uh, good for young people to encounter. And he divides them up according to categories and genres and age levels. And, so, and a lot of the stuff he's got in there are poems, um, especially for the younger kids. Um, so, so I would find that list. That list is, I think, easy to find online. Uh, it, I think I think all Americans ought to read the you know the old American poets that that address themselves to young people. Um, Frost did sometimes. Uh, you know, a guy. I mean, he's a pretty good poet. He's He's not Dante, he's not Shakespeare, but John Greenleaf Whittier was beloved um, by by Americans. Longfellow was beloved by Americans. I tell that story about a bunch of boys in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in February, knocked on his door uh, one day out of the blue. They didn't. They never met him. He didn't know who they were. That so they just knocked on his door and said. Um, Mr. Longfellow, we just want to say happy birthday to you, and we really like your poem. 
And he invited them in, and they had tea and scones, and they talked about poetry that afternoon. And he, that was his 75th birthday. He died a few weeks later. Um, bunch of boys, bunch of young kids. Mm. You know, that's a different universe. Yes, it the is. Longfellow, he was he was beloved. He was beloved by 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 young and old. Well, I have no doubt that you're going to be beloved by young and old as well as people get this the word on this book. Um, and again, I just want to say your wife nailed this. She said he's not going to be an egghead, and. <laughs> You were not. <laughs> you were not an egghead. I hope I don't get her in trouble. But she promised. She said it'll be a great time. And you have been so fun to talk to. And the time has flown by. And your wife promised me you'd come back on the show to talk about your book about raising boys. So we know we'll see you again. But God blessings. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and blessings to you for this work and and just your gift to the church. We appreciate it very much. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And to all our dummies, we hope you have a wonderful day and go read some poetry. You'll enjoy it and you'll be blessed by it.